Funeral Orations by St. Gregory the Theologian, translated by C. G. Brown and others. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Oration 18 On the Death of His Father This oration was delivered A.D. 374. St. Gregory the Elder died early in that year, according to the Greek Menea, on the 1st of January, though Clemenset and some others place his death a few months later. His wife, St. Nona, survived him, and was present to hear the oration, as was also St. Basil, who desired to honor one who had consecrated him to the episcopate. The aged saint, who died in his hundredth year, had originally belonged to a sect called Ipsistarii. Our knowledge of the existence and tenets of this sect is due to this oration, and to a few sentences in that of St. Gregory Neeson, by whom they are called Ipsistians. He was converted by the prayers, influence, and example of his wife, St. Nona, and, soon after his baptism, consecrated Bishop of Nazianzus. He was eminent as an able administrator, a devout Christian, an orthodox teacher, a steadfast confessor of the faith, a sympathetic pastor, an affectionate father. In his life and work he was seconded by his wife and followed by his three children, Gregory, Gorgonia, and Cesarius, whose names are all to be found upon the roll of the saints. Funeral Oration on His Father in the presence of St. Basil. O man of God, and faithful servant, and steward of the mysteries of God, and man of desires of the Spirit. For thus Scripture speaks of men advanced and lofty, superior to visible things. I will call you also a God to Pharaoh, and all the Egyptian and hostile power, and pillar and ground of the church, and will of God, and light in the world, holding forth the word of life, and prop of the faith and resting place of the spirit. But why should I enumerate all the titles which your virtue, in its varied forms, has won for and applied to you as your own? Tell me, however, whence do you come? What is your business, and what favor do you bring us? since I know that you are entirely moved with and by God, and for the benefit of those who receive you. Are you come to inspect us, or to seek for the pastor, or to take the oversight of the flock? You find us no longer in existence, but for the most part having passed away with him, unable to bear with the place of our affliction, especially now that we have lost our skillful steersman, our light of life, to whom we look to direct our course as the blazing beacon of salvation above us. He has departed with all his excellence, and all the power of pastoral organization, which he had gathered in a long time, full of days and wisdom, and crowned, to use the words of Solomon, with the hoary head of glory. His flock is desolate and downcast, filled, as you see, with despondency and dejection no longer reposing the green pasture and reared up by the water of comfort, but seeking precipices, deserts, and pits, in which it will be scattered and perish, in despair of ever obtaining another wise pastor, 
absolutely persuaded that it cannot find such an one as he, content if it be one who will not be far inferior. There are, as I said, three causes to necessitate your presence, all of equal weight, ourselves, the pastor, and the flock. Come, then, and according to the spirit of ministry which is in you, assign to each its due, and guide your words in judgment, so that we may more than ever marvel at your wisdom. And how will you guide them? First, by bestowing seemly praise upon his virtue, not only as a pure sepulchral tribute of speech to him who was pure, but also to set forth to others his conduct and example as a mark of true piety. Then bestow upon us some brief counsels concerning life and death, and the union and severance of body and soul, and the two worlds, the one present but transitory, the other spiritually perceived and abiding, and persuade us to despise that which is deceitful and disordered and uneven, carrying us and being carried, like the waves, now up, now down, but to cling to that which is firm and stable and divine and constant, free from all disturbance and confusion. For this would lessen our pain, because of friends departed before us. Nay, we should rejoice if your words should carry us hence and set us on high, and high distress of the present and the future, and persuade us that we also are pressing on to a good master." and that our home is better than our pilgrimage, and that translation and removal thither is to us who are tempest-tossed here like a calm haven to men at sea, or as ease and relief from toil come to men who, at the close of a long journey, escape the troubles of the wayfarer, so to those who attain to the hostel yonder comes a better and more tolerable existence than that of those who still tread the crooked and precipitous path of this life. Thus might you console us, but what of the flock? Would you first promise the oversight and leadership of yourself, a man under whose wings we all would gladly repose, and for whose words we thirst more eagerly than men suffering from thirst for the purest fountain? Secondly, Persuade us that the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep has not even now left us, but is present, and tends and guides, and knows his own, and is known of his own, and, though bodily invisible, is spiritually recognized, and defends his flock against the wolves, and allows no one to climb over into the fold as a robber and traitor, to pervert and steal away, by the voice of strangers, souls that are under the fair guidance of the truth. I, I am well assured that his intercession is of more avail now than was his instruction in former days, since he is closer to God, now that he has shaken off his bodily fetters and freed his mind from the clay which obscured it, and holds intercourse naked with the nakedness of the prime and purest mind. Being promoted, if it be not rash to say so, to the rank and confidence of an angel. This, with your power of speech and spirit, you will set forth and discuss better than I can sketch it. But in order that, 
through ignorance of his excellences, your language may not fall very short of his deserts. I will, from my own knowledge of the departed, briefly draw an outline and preliminary plan of an eulogy to be handed to you, the illustrious artist of such subjects. For the details of the beauty of his virtue to be filled in and transmitted to the ears and minds of all. Leaving to the laws of panegyric the description of his country, his family, his nobility of figure, his external magnificence, and the other subjects of human pride, I begin with what is of most consequence and comes closest to ourselves. He sprang from a stock unrenowned and not well suited for piety for I am not ashamed of his origin, in my confidence in the close of his life, one that was not planted in the house of God, but far removed and estranged, the combined product of two of the greatest opposites, Greek error and legal imposture, some parts of each of which it escaped, of others it was compounded, for on the one side they reject idols and sacrifices, but reverence fire and lights. On the other, they observe the Sabbath and petty regulations as to certain meats, but despise circumcision. These lowly men call themselves ipsistadii, and the Almighty is, so they say, the only object of their worship. What was the result of this double tendency to impiety? I know not whether to praise more highly the grace which called him or his own purpose. However, he so purged the eye of his mind from the humors which obscured it, and ran towards the truth with such speed that he endured the loss of his mother and his property for a while, for the sake of his heavenly father and the true inheritance, and submitted more readily to this dishonor than others to the greatest honors and, most wonderful as this is, I wonder at it but little. Why? Because this glory is common to him with many others, and all must come into the great net of God, and be caught by the words of the fishers, although some are earlier, some later, enclosed by the gospel. But what does especially in his life move my wonder, it is needful for me to mention. Even before he was of our fold, he was ours. His character made him one of us. For as many of our own are not with us, whose life alienates them from the common body, so many of those without are on our side, whose character anticipates their faith, and need only the name of that which indeed they possess. My father was one of these, an alien shoot, but inclined by his life towards us. He was so far advanced in self-control that he became at once most beloved and most modest, two qualities difficult to combine. What greater and more splendid testimony can there be to his justice than his exercise of a position second to none in the state, without enriching himself by a single farthing? Although he saw everyone else casting the hands of Breareros upon the public funds, and swollen with ill-gotten gain, for thus do I term unrighteous wealth. Of his prudence this also is no slight proof, but in the course of my speech further details will be given. 
It was as a reward for such conduct, I think, that he attained to the faith. How this came about, a matter too important to be passed over, I would now set forth. I have heard the scriptures say, Who can find a valiant woman? and declare that she is a divine gift, and that a good marriage is brought about by the Lord. Even those without are of the same mind. If they say that a man can win no fairer prize than a good wife, nor a worse one than her opposite. But we can mention none who has been in this respect more fortunate than he. For I think that, had any one from the ends of the earth and from every race of men attempted to bring about the best of marriages, he could not have found a better or more harmonious one than this. For the most excellent of men and of women were so united that their marriage was a union of virtue rather than of bodies, since while they excelled all others, they could not excel each other, because in virtue they were quite equally matched. She, indeed, who was given to Adam as a helpmeet for him, because it was not good for man to be alone, instead of an assistant became an enemy, and instead of a yoke-fellow an opponent, and beguiling the man by means of pleasure estranged him through the tree of knowledge from the tree of life. But she who was given by God to my father became not only, as is less wonderful, his assistant, but even his leader, drawing him on by her influence in deed and word to the highest excellence, judging it best in all other respects to be overruled by her husband according to the law of marriage, but not being ashamed in regard of piety even to offer herself as his teacher. Admirable indeed as was this conduct of hers, it was still more admirable that he should readily acquiesce in it. She is a woman who, while others have been honored and extolled for natural and artificial beauty, has acknowledged but one kind of beauty, that of the soul, and the preservation or the restoration, as far as possible, of the divine image. Pigments and devices for adornment she has rejected as worthy of women on the stage. The only genuine form of noble birth she recognized is piety in the knowledge of whence we are sprung and whither we are tending. The only safe and inviolable form of wealth is, she considered, to strip oneself of wealth for God and the poor, and especially for those of our own kin who are unfortunate. In such help only as is necessary, she held to be rather a reminder than a relief of their distress, while a more liberal beneficence brings stable honor and most perfect consolation. Some women have excelled in thrifty management, others in piety, while she, difficult as it is to unite the two virtues, has surpassed all in both of them, both by her eminence in each and by the fact that she alone has combined them together. To as great a degree has she, by her care and skill, secured the prosperity of her household, according to the injunctions and laws of Solomon as to the valiant woman, as if she had had no knowledge of piety. And she applied herself to God and divine things, as closely as if absolutely released from household cares, allowing neither branch of her duty to interfere with the other, but rather making each of them support the other. 
what time or place of her prayer ever escaped her. To this she was drawn before all other things in the day, or rather, who had such hope of receiving an immediate answer to her request? Who paid such reverence to the hand and countenance of the priests, or honored all kinds of philosophy? Who reduced the flesh by more constant fast and vigil, or stood like a pillar at the night-long and daily psalmody? Who had a greater love for virginity, though patient of the marriage-bond herself? Who was a better patron of the orphan and the widow? Who aided as much in the alleviation of the misfortunes of the mourner? These things, small as they are, and perhaps contemptible in the eyes of some, because not easily attainable by most people, for that which is unattainable comes through envy to be thought not even credible, are in my eyes most honorable, since they were the discoveries of her faith and the undertakings of her spiritual fervor. So also in the holy assemblies or places her voice was never to be heard, except in the necessary responses of the service. And if it was a great thing for the altar never to have had an iron tool lifted upon it, and that no chisel should be seen or heard, with greater reason, since everything dedicated to God ought to be natural and free from artificiality, it was also surely a great thing that she reverenced the sanctuary by her silence, that she never turned her back to the venerable table, nor spat upon the divine pavement, that she never grasped the hand or kissed the lips of any heathen woman, however honorable in other respects, or closely related she might be. Nor would she ever share the salt, I say not willingly, but even under compulsion, of those who came from the profane and unholy table. Nor could she bear, against the law of conscience, to pass by or look upon a polluted house, nor to have her ears or tongue, which had received and uttered divine things, defiled by Grecian tales or theatrical songs, on the ground that what is unholy is unbecoming to holy things. And what is still more wonderful, she never so far yielded to the external signs of grief, although greatly moved even by the misfortunes of strangers, as to allow a sound of woe to burst forth before the Eucharist, or a tear to fall from the eye mystically sealed, or any trace of mourning to be left on the occasion of a festival, however frequent her own sorrows might be. Inasmuch as the God-loving soul should subject every human experience to the things of God. I pass by in silence what is still more ineffable, of which God is witness, and those of the faithful handmaidens to whom she has confided such things. That which concerns myself is perhaps undeserving of mention, since I have proved unworthy of the hope cherished in regard to me. Yet it was on her part a great undertaking to promise me to God before my birth, with no fear of the future, and to dedicate me immediately after I was born. Through God's goodness has it been that she has not utterly failed in her prayer, and that the auspicious sacrifice was not rejected. Some of these things were already in existence, others were in the future, growing up by means of gradual additions. 
and as the sun which most pleasantly cast its morning rays becomes at midday hotter and more brilliant so also did she who from the first gave no slight evidence of piety shine forth at last with fuller light then indeed he who had established her in his house had at home no slight spur to piety possessed by her origin and descent of the love of god in christ and having received virtue as her patrimony not as he had been cut out of the wild olive and grafted into the good olive yet unable to bear in the excess of her faith to be unequally yoked for though surpassing all others in endurance and fortitude she could not brook this the being but half united to god because of the estrangement of him who was part of herself and the failure to add to the bodily union a close connection in the spirit on this account she fell before god night and day entreating for the salvation of her head with many fastings and tears and assiduously devoting herself to her husband and influencing him in many ways by means of reproaches admonitions attentions estrangements and above all by her own character with its fervour for piety by which the soul is specially prevailed upon and softened and willingly submits to virtuous pressure the drop of water constantly striking the rock was destined to hollow it and at length attain its longing as the sequel shows these were the objects of her prayers and hopes in the fervour of faith rather than of youth indeed none was as confident of things present as she of things hoped for from her experience of the generosity of god for the salvation of my father there was a concurrence of the gradual conviction of his reason and the vision of dreams which god often bestows upon a soul worthy of salvation what was the vision this is to me the most pleasing part of the story he thought that he was singing as he had never done before though his wife was frequent in her supplications and prayers this verse from the psalms of holy david i was glad when they said unto me we will go into the house of the lord the psalm was a strange one to him and along with its words the desire came to him as soon as she heard it having thus obtained her prayer she seized the opportunity replying that the vision would bring the greatest pleasure if accompanied by its fulfilment and manifesting by her joy the greatness of the benefit she urged forward his salvation before anything could interfere to hinder the call and dissipate the object of her longing at that very time it happened that a number of bishops were hastening to nicaea to oppose the madness of arius since the wickedness of dividing the godhead had just arisen so my father yielded himself to god and to the heralds of the truth and confessed his desire and requested from them the common salvation one of them being the celebrated leontius at that time our own metropolitan it would be a great wrong to grace were i to pass by in silence the wonder which then was bestowed upon him by grace the witnesses of the wonder are not few the teachers of accuracy were spiritually at fault and the grace was a forecast of the future and the formula of the priesthood was mingled with the admission of the catechumen o involuntary initiation 
Bending his knee, he received the form of admission to the state of a catechumen in such wise, that many, not only of the highest, but even of the lowest, intellect, prophesied the future, being assured by no indistinct signs of what was to be. After a short interval, wonder succeeded wonder. I will commend the account of it to the ears of the faithful, for to profane minds nothing that is good is trustworthy. He was approaching that regeneration by water and the Spirit, by which we confess to God the formation and completion of the Christ-like man, and the transformation and reformation from the earthy to the Spirit. He was approaching the labor with warm desire and bright hope, after all the purgation possible, and a far greater purification of soul and body than that of the men who were to receive the tables from Moses. Their purification extended only to their dress, and a slight restriction of the belly, and a temporary continence. The whole of his past life had been a preparation for the enlightenment, and a preliminary purification making sure the gift, in order that perfection might be entrusted to purity, and that the blessing might incur no risk in a soul which was confident in its possession of the grace. And as he was ascending out of the water, there flashed around him a light and a glory worthy of the disposition with which he approached the gift of faith. This was manifest even to some others, who for the time concealed the wonder, from fear of speaking of a sight which each one thought had been only his own, but shortly afterwards communicated it to one another. To the baptizer and initiator, however, it was so clear and visible, that he could not even hold back the mystery, but publicly cried out that he was anointing with the Spirit his own successor. Nor indeed would any one disbelieve this who has heard and knows that Moses, when little in the eyes of men, and not yet of any account, was called from the bush which burned but was not consumed, or rather by him who appeared in the bush, and was encouraged by that first wonder. Moses, I say, for whom the sea was divided, and manna rained down, and the rock poured out a fountain, and the pillar of fire and cloud led the way in turn, and the stretching out of his hands gained a victory, and the representation of the cross overcame tens of thousands. Isaiah again, who beheld the glory of the seraphim, and after him Jeremiah, who was entrusted with great power against nations and kings. The one heard the divine voice, and was cleansed by a live coal for his prophetic office, and the other was known before his formation and sanctified before his birth. Paul also, while yet a persecutor, who became the great herald of the truth and teacher of the Gentiles in faith, was surrounded by a light and acknowledged him whom he was persecuting, and was entrusted with his great ministry, and filled every ear and mind with the gospel. Why need I count up all those who have been called to himself by God, and associated with such wonders as confirmed him in his piety? Nor was it the case that after such and so incredible and startling beginnings, any of the former things was put to shame by his subsequent conduct, as happens with those who very soon acquire a distaste for what is good, and so neglect all further progress, if they do not utterly relapse into vice. 
This cannot be said of him, for he was most consistent with himself and his early days, and kept in harmony his life before the priesthood with its excellence, and his life after it with what had gone before, since it would have been unbecoming to begin in one way and end in another, or to advance to a different end from that which he had in view at first. He was next entrusted with the priesthood, not with the facility and disorder of the present day, but after a brief interval, in order to add to his own cleansing the skill and power to cleanse others. For this is the law of spiritual sequence. And when he had been entrusted with it, the grace was the more glorified, being really the grace of God, and not of men, and not, as the preacher says, an independent impulse and purpose of spirit. He received a woodland and rustic church, the pastoral care and oversight of which had not been bestowed from a distance, but it had been cared for by one of his predecessors of admirable and angelic disposition, and a more simple man than our present rulers of the people. But after he had been speedily taken to God, it had, in consequence of the loss of its leader, for the most part grown careless and run wild. Accordingly, he at first strove without harshness to soften the habits of the people, both by words of pastoral knowledge and by setting himself before them as an example, like a spiritual statue, polished into the beauty of all excellent conduct. He next, by constant meditation on the divine words, though a late student of such matters, gathered together so much wisdom within a short time that he was in no wise excelled by those who had spent the greatest toil upon them, and received this special grace from God, that he became the father and teacher of orthodoxy. Not, like our modern wise men, yielding to the spirit of the age, nor defending our faith by indefinite and sophistical language, as if they had no fixity of faith, or were adulterating the truth. But he was more pious than those who possessed rhetorical power, more skilled in rhetoric than those who were upward in mind. Or rather, while he took the second place as an orator, he surpassed all in piety." he acknowledged one God worshipped in Trinity, and three who are united in one Godhead, neither Sibelianizing as to the one, nor Arianizing as to the three, either by contracting and so atheistically annihilating the Godhead, or by tearing it asunder by distinctions of unequal greatness or nature. For seeing that its every quality is incomprehensible and beyond the power of our intellect, how can we either perceive or express by definition on such a subject that which is beyond our ken? How can the immeasurable be measured and the Godhead be reduced to the condition of finite things and measured by degrees of greater or less? What else must we say of this great man of God, the true divine, under the influence in regard to these subjects of the Holy Ghost, but through his perception of these points he, like the great Noah, the father of this second world, made this church to be called the New Jerusalem, and a second ark borne up upon the waters, 
since it both surmounted the deluge of souls and the insults of the heretics, and excelled all others in reputation no less than it fell behind them in numbers, and has had the same fortune as the sacred Bethlehem, which can without contradiction be at once said to be a little city and the metropolis of the world, since it is the nurse and mother of Christ, who both made and overcame the world. To give a proof of what I say, when a tumult of the overzealous part of the church was raised against us, and we had been decoyed by a document and artful terms into association with evil, he alone was believed to have an unwounded mind, and a soul unstained by ink, even when he had been imposed upon in his simplicity, and failed from his guilelessness of soul to be on his guard against guile. He it was alone, or rather first of all, who by his zeal for piety reconciled to himself and the rest of the church the faction opposed to us, which was the last to leave us, the first to return, owing to both their reverence for the man and the purity of his doctrine, so that the serious storm in the churches was allayed, and the hurricane reduced to a breeze under the influence of his prayers and admonitions while, if I may make a boastful remark, I was his partner in piety and activity, aiding him in every effort on behalf of what is good, accompanying and running beside him, and being permitted on this occasion to contribute a very great share of the toil. Here my account of these matters, which is a little premature, must come to an end. Who could enumerate the full tale of his excellences? or, if he wished to pass by most of them, discover without difficulty what can be omitted. For each trait, as it occurs to the mind, seems superior to what has gone before. It takes possession of me, and I feel more at a loss to know what I ought to pass by, than other panegyrists are as to what they ought to say. So that the abundance of material is to some extent a hindrance to me, and my mind is itself put to the test in its efforts to test his qualities, and its inability, where all are equal, to find one which surpasses the rest. So that, just as when we see a pebble falling into still water, it becomes the center and starting point of circle after circle, each by its continuous agitation breaking up that which lies outside of it. This is exactly the case with myself. For as soon as one thing enters my mind, another follows and displaces it, and I am wearied out in making a choice, is what I have already grasped is ever retiring in favor of that which follows in its train. Who was more anxious than he for the common weal? Who more wise in domestic affairs, since God, who orders all things and do variation, assigned to him a house and suitable fortune. Who was more sympathetic in mind, more bounteous in hand, towards the poor, that most dishonored portion of the nature to which equal honor is due? For he actually treated his own property as if it were another's, of which he was but the steward, relieving poverty as far as he could, and expending not only his superfluities but his necessities a manifest proof of love for the poor, giving a portion, 
not only to seven, according to the injunction of Solomon, but if an eighth came forward, not even in his case being niggardly, but more pleased to dispose of his wealth than we know others are to acquire it, taking away the yoke and election, which means, as I think, all meanness and testing as to whether the recipient is worthy or not, and word of murmuring in benevolence. This is what most men do. They give, indeed, but without that readiness, which is a greater and more perfect thing than the mere offering. For he thought it much better to be generous even to the undeserving for the sake of the deserving, than from fear of the undeserving to deprive those who were deserving. And this seems to be the duty of casting our bread upon the waters, since it will not be swept away or perish in the eyes of the just investigator, but will arrive yonder where all that is ours is laid up, and will meet with us in due time, even though we think it not. But what is best and greatest of all? His magnanimity was accompanied by freedom from ambition. Its extent and character I will proceed to show. In considering their wealth to be common to all, and in liberality in bestowing it, he and his consort rivaled each other in their struggles after excellence. But he entrusted the greater part of this bounty to her hand, as being a most excellent and trusty steward of such matters. What a woman she is! Not even the Atlantic Ocean, or if there be a greater one, could meet her drafts upon it. So great and so boundless is her love of liberality. In the contrary sense, she has rivaled the horse-leech of Solomon by her insatiable longing for progress, overcoming the tendency to backsliding and unable to satisfy her zeal for benevolence. She not only considered all the property which they originally possessed and what accrued to them later is unable to suffice her own longing, but she would, as I have often heard her say, have gladly sold herself and her children into slavery, had there been any means of doing so, to expend the proceeds upon the poor. Thus entirely did she give the rein to her generosity. This is, I imagine, far more convincing than any instance of it could be. Magnanimity in regard to money may be found without difficulty in the case of others, whether it be dissipated in the public rivalries of the state, or lent to God through the poor, the only mode of treasuring it up for those who spend it. But it is not easy to discover a man who has renounced the consequent reputation. For it is desire for reputation which supplies to most men the readiness to spend. And where the bounty must be secret, there the disposition to it is less keen. So bounteous was his hand. Further details I leave to those who knew him, so that if anything of the kind is borne witness to in regard to myself, it proceeds from that fountain, and is a portion of that stream. Who was more under the divine guidance in admitting men to the sanctuary, or in resenting dishonor done to it, or in cleansing the holy table with awe from the unholy? who, with such unbiased judgment, and with the scales of justice, either decided a suit, 
or hated vice, or honored virtue, or promoted the most excellent? Who was so compassionate for the sinner, or sympathetic towards those who were running well? Who better knew the right time for using the rod and the staff, yet relied most upon the staff? Whose eyes were more upon the faithful in the land, especially upon those who, in the monastic and unwedded life, have despised the earth and the things of earth? Who did more to rebuke pride and foster lowliness, in that in no assumed or external way is most of those who now make profession of virtue, and are in appearance as elegant as the most mindless women, who, for lack of beauty of their own, take refuge in pigments, and are, if I may say so, splendidly made up, uncomely in their comeliness, and more ugly than they originally were. For his lowliness was no matter of dress, but of spiritual disposition. Nor was it expressed by a bent neck, or lowered voice, or downcast look, or length of beard, or close-shaven head, or measured gait, which can be adopted for a while, but are very quickly exposed, for nothing which is affected can be permanent. No, he was ever most lofty in life, most lowly in mind, inaccessible in virtue, most accessible in intercourse. His dress had in it nothing remarkable, avoiding equally magnificence and sordidness, while his internal brilliancy was supereminent. The disease and insatiability of the belly he, if any one, held in check, but without ostentation, so that he might be kept down without being puffed up from having encouraged a new vice by his pursuit of reputation. For he held that doing and saying everything by which fame among externs might be won is the characteristic of the politician, whose chief happiness is found in the present life. But that the spiritual and Christian man should look to one object alone, his salvation, and think much of what may contribute to this, but detest as of no value what does not, and accordingly despise what is visible, but be occupied with interior perfection alone, and estimate most highly whatever promotes his own improvement, and attracts others through himself to that which is supremely good. But what was most excellent and most characteristic, though least generally recognized, was his simplicity, and freedom from guile and resentment. For among men of ancient and modern days, each is supposed to have had some special success, as each chanced to have received from God some particular virtue. Job unconquered patience in misfortune. Moses and David, meekness. Samuel, prophecy, seeing into the future. Phineas, zeal, for which he has a name. Peter and Paul, eagerness in preaching the sons of Zebedee, magniloquence, whence also they were entitled sons of thunder. But why should I enumerate them all, speaking as I do among those who know this? Now the specially distinguishing mark of Stephen and of my father was the absence of malice. For not even when in peril did Stephen hate his assailants, but was stoned while praying for those who were stoning him as a disciple of Christ, 
on whose behalf he was allowed to suffer, and so, in his long-suffering, bearing for God a nobler fruit than his death. My father, in allowing no interval between assault and forgiveness, so that he was almost robbed of pain itself by the speed of pardon. End of the first part of Oration 18